The heat wave scorching Europe this summer is part of a larger global trend of extreme weather. Policymakers, especially in the U.S., are so far failing to take steps to avoid a more dire future. We'll hear how people in areas being scorched are doing. It's Monday, July 11th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, during the pandemic, many people got caught up in the cryptocurrency craze. I bought a ton of the top 100 coins. Just, I went down and I'd put like $10 in every coin. But the total value of digital currencies has now fallen dramatically. Can you spare a thought for the poor novice investor? Also, Atlantic cod, a fish that was foundational to New England's economy, is being caught at historically low levels. But a research scientist says the cod is in the early stages of a comeback. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Flights halted, schools closed, rail service limited, all the result of extreme heat in Britain that scientists repeatedly warn people will be facing more often around the planet because of climate change. Britain's first ever red warning tied to the heat wave is in effect. Temperatures are forecast to hit the equivalent of 106 degrees Fahrenheit from London north to Manchester and York. Britons are trying to keep cool in creative ways, hanging white sheets over windows facing the sun, making heavy use of sun-shielding umbrellas, or seeking relief at the beach. Temperatures are easing in other parts of Europe, but not enough to calm hundreds of active wildfires. Alan Ruiz de Rol has this snapshot from Spain. Spain is facing day eight of a deadly heat wave that has sent temperatures soaring over 110 degrees and which scientists say is consistent with climate change. At least 500 have died from the heat, primarily older adults, according to the Carlos III Health Institute. In Spain, France and Portugal, firefighters continue to battle hundreds of wildfires, which have also taken a deadly toll. Tens of thousands of people have been forced to leave their homes and holiday accommodations. Alan Ruiz de Rol reporting. In Florida, a sentencing trial is underway for Nicholas Cruz, the gunman who killed 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. NPR's Greg Allen reports the jury will have two options, give Cruz life in prison or the death penalty. The jury will weigh aggravating and mitigating factors to considering whether to recommend the death penalty. The prosecution laid out seven potential aggravating factors, including that there were multiple victims, that it was done at a school and was planned beforehand. In his opening statement, prosecutor Mike Satz told jurors he would speak to them about the unspeakable. About this defendant's goal-directed, planned, systematic murder, mass murder, The defense is expected to present evidence and testimony of Cruz's history of behavioral and mental health problems, but is delaying its opening statement until the state concludes making its case. Greg Allen, NPR News, Fort Lauderdale. Some of the nation's biggest banks are still finding ways to make money, though not as much as last year. NPR's Scott Horsley reports on the latest corporate earnings reports. Goldman Sachs says its profits this spring were 48 percent lower than the same period a year ago, but that's a smaller decline than analysts had expected. Goldman's trading business helped to cushion a steep drop in corporate deal-making. Bank of America also reported better-than-expected results for the second quarter, thanks in part to strong consumer demand for loans. Gasoline prices fell further over the weekend. AAA says the average price nationwide is now 452 a gallon, a drop of nearly 50 cents from the peak last month. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Dow closed down 216 points. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The National Weather Service is warning of the potential of severe weather over the next several hours. Storms with thunder, lightning, and rain are expected to cross the area between now and 10 o'clock tonight. The Weather Service says some of the storms may be severe with damaging winds, even the potential for a tornado. The Weather Service says the risk is highest in western parts of the state. Drivers are being warned of delays on Interstate 495 north this afternoon. State police say a tractor-trailer rolled over at the intersection of 495 and Interstate 290 in Marlboro. It happened just about uh, an hour ago. On 495 north, only the breakdown lane is open while crews work to remove the big rig. Traffic on 495 northbound is jammed for about six miles between Southborough and the crash site. MBTA leaders say the transit system needs more money to make safety upgrades federal regulators are requiring. Last month, the Federal Transit Administration ordered the T to address safety problems by taking several actions. They include boosting staffing and speeding up maintenance. Today, T officials told state lawmakers the system needs $300 million to make all the changes. T General Manager Steve Poftek says he thinks the Federal Transit Administration will order other steps next month when it issues a final report. I will say I think there will be additional costs, and I think there will be they will be significant. I can't discern the, the actual you know, and anything would be pure conjecture on my part. The state legislature is currently considering proposals that would send more than $600 million to the T next year. Workers at a Starbucks on Commonwealth Avenue near Boston University are out on strike. Barista Taylor Dickerson is among them. She says the corporation assigned a new store manager two days after the workers voted to unionize. Dickerson says that manager has been cutting employees' hours. That's our primary concern, removing her, but we're also hoping that after she's gone, you know, we don't just get someone who is exactly like that. So we want a meeting at least once a month to kind of assess hours and staffing issues. Dickerson says the strike will last until their demands are met. Starbucks has not responded to a WBR request for comment on the strike. In the forecast, 79 degrees feels even warmer than that right now because of the humidity. We should have showers and scattered thunderstorms this afternoon into tonight, some of them strong with damaging wind gusts. Greatest risk is until about 10 o'clock tonight. Pretty warm overnight, 73 at the lowest. Tomorrow, clouds early, sunshine later on. Windy and hot, highs about 93. It's 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Europe is reeling from a record-breaking heat wave this week, with forest fires raging in France, Spain, and Portugal, and the UK has declared a national emergency. The country's weather forecasters have issued a high-level heat alert for this first time. Scientists say these kind of extreme temperatures, once rare, will become increasingly frequent in Europe and in Britain thanks to global climate change. Villa Marx reports from London. The mercury rose Monday right across Wales and southern England, with London among the hottest of hotspots. Many residents of the capital sought relief in the city's open spaces, including midwife Carly Shelley sunning herself in Haggerston Park. Because we live in the city, like we all live in these little concrete boxes, right? We're quite high up, we're on the fifth floor. So, you know, the heat rises. Like, not many people have gardens in London, you know? You're really blessed if you had a garden. So... I mean, we're lucky we're in the park. City life is harsh in the heat. 
Her young daughter Beulah seems a lot less bothered, perhaps since school was cancelled for the day. I love it because I can do water fights and stuff like that, and I can have fun with my friends. Prime Minister Boris Johnson may be on his way out, but the UK government itself was still responding to the soaring temperatures, Cabinet Office Minister Kit Malthouse told Sky News. As it became clear that the, the weather was going to produce this record heat and there's a, a strong possibility that we'll hit the all-time record in the next 48 hours, we have been in close contact with all the public services to make sure that they are as ready as they can be. Many schools have closed earlier, some shut entirely, with kids that did attend allowed to ditch their usual uniforms. Hospitals cancelled surgeries as operating theatres overheated and train schedules slowed or were slashed entirely. Emergency services, particularly ambulances, have been on high alert with thousands of extra staff on call. Care workers, meanwhile, were required to check in more frequently on older and more vulnerable patients. Here at one London airport, Luton, the excess heat even melted a runway, diverting incoming flights and delaying some departures for hours. Government Minister Malthouse said authorities should see this situation as an educational experience for longer-term climate changes. We're sort of getting everybody stood up and ready uh, for the next 48 hours, and we just need to, to get through that, learn from it, and then wait for the cooler air to arrive on Wednesday. Outgoing Prime Minister Johnson has faced severe criticism Monday for skipping a national security meeting that was focused on the response. The country's only Green Party legislator, Caroline Lucas, said his government is using a, quote, watering can to combat what she called a climate emergency. What's needed instead, she said, was a giant fire hose. For NPR News, I'm Villa Marks at London Luton Airport. And Europe isn't the only place getting hit with searing heat this week. China is facing another week of extreme temperatures. In the U.S., Texas, California, and the Central Plains states all have excessive heat warnings in effect. So to talk about this, we're joined by Laura Benchoff of NPR's climate team. Hey, Laura. Good afternoon. Uh, extreme heat hitting a lot of places all at once. How direct is the link to climate change here? This is exactly the pattern that scientists say plays out with climate change. Heat waves are getting more common and they're getting more intense. Scientists are finding that some heat waves, like the record-breaking one in the Pacific Northwest last year, would be virtually impossible without human-caused climate change. And remember, this is what we're seeing with the planet having warmed about two degrees Fahrenheit since pre-industrial times. This trend is expected to just keep getting worse as global average temperatures rise. And in many places, temperatures alone aren't the only danger. It's also the humidity. Uh, speaking to you from here in Washington, D.C., <laughs> I know how miserable humidity can feel, but explain why it's actually more dangerous than high heat alone. So it has to do with our ability to sweat. You know, the basic idea is your body sweats, the sweat evaporates off your skin, and it cools our bodies in that process, right? But high humidity makes that more difficult. NPR spoke to Larry Kenny, a professor of physiology, about that. He has a lab at Penn State University where he cranks up the heat and humidity, and then he has people on a treadmill to see how their bodies respond. He says humidity has a big effect. Only sweat that evaporates has any ability to cool the body. And so as the absolute humidity increases, when it gets close to the humidity of the sweat on the skin, it can no longer evaporate. So basically, you can be covered in sweat, but if it's not evaporating, you're not getting any cooler. Hmm. And out in the real world, the temperature might not seem that high, but if the humidity is super high, it's still really dangerous. So climate change is increasing heat waves. Is it also increasing humidity? 
studies are finding that it is. And that's because warmer air can hold more water vapor, which means more humidity. So as the climate warms, scientists say we need to pay attention not just to the overall temperature, but something called the wet bulb temperature that takes humidity into account. And Kenny's lab recently found that the maximum wet bulb temperature that humans can endure is 88 degrees Fahrenheit at 100% humidity. He says even if you're just sitting in the shade, you're at risk of heat stroke and even death in those conditions. People need to understand that heat is the most deadly of all weather-related fatalities, much more so than tornadoes, hurricanes, all other things combined that it is dangerous, and in particular, it's dangerous to vulnerable populations like the elderly. He says a good thing to keep tabs on is the heat index from the National Weather Service, which takes humidity into account. Let's talk about the effort to address all of this, because climate action seems to have stalled in the U.S. at least. Democrats were hoping to pass major climate spending, but last week, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia pulled his support. What option do Democrats have right now? You know, they're still hoping to push climate spending through. This is billions of dollars for things like subsidies for electric cars and renewable energy. And Democrats have argued that energy costs are a big part of inflation right now. And so these incentives could help with those costs in the long term. But Manchin has said he wants to see what happens with inflation before making the deal. So right now, a big spending package is off the table. Some hope that, you know, he'll come back to the table. These subsidies could get through later or they could be split up and passed on a piecemeal basis. Now, the White House released a statement last week saying if the Senate wouldn't act on climate change, then President Biden would use executive orders to further his climate agenda. All right. That's NPR's Laura Benshoff. Thanks for your coverage, Laura. Thank you so much. In Saudi Arabia, the dust is settling a little on President Biden's short visit over the weekend. Top Saudi officials are touting a return to the status quo of U.S.-Saudi relations. Meanwhile, Saudi dissidents and human rights activists abroad say that Biden's friendly optics with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has already had consequences. NPR's Fatma Tanis reports from Jeddah. After years of concerns about American engagement in the region, President Biden's visit appears to have set the record straight for the time being. What we have seen through the summit and the communiques is that America has affirmed its presence in the Middle East. According to President Biden, America is not going anywhere. And this was needed to be said. That's Badr al-Saif, professor of history at Kuwait University. Since Biden's return to the U.S., high-level Saudi officials have expressed satisfaction on local and international media for what they see as a return to normalcy in U.S.-Saudi relations. And al-Saif says it shows their confidence. The Middle East, the Gulf in particular, is more resurgent. It's more confident of its abilities. The White House says Saudi Arabia agreed to work on ending the war in Yemen, working toward energy market stability, and made a historic gesture toward Israel by opening its airspace to commercial flights going to or from Israel. But the Saudi leadership had its own spin on that. No, there are, uh, this has nothing to do with diplomatic ties with Israel. That's Prince Faisal bin Farhan, the Saudi foreign minister, at a press conference after the summit. We hope uh, that it will make uh, some travelers' lives easier. It's uh, not in any way a, pre a precursor to any further steps. Al-Saif says Saudis want to keep up pressure on Israel to end its occupation of land Palestinians seek for an independent state. Saudi Arabia will not normalize until they get an answer on the proposal that they put 
forward in 2002 in Beirut, land for peace. Meanwhile, Saudi dissidents abroad and human rights activists have been raising alarms about Biden's meeting with the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and their now famous fist bump greeting. Abdullah Alod in Washington is the director of Gulf Affairs at Democracy for the Arab World Now, and he says the consequences are already visible. They are going after dissidents and they are calling them terrorists. He's referring to comments on the BBC made by a top Saudi official who said what the West views as dissidents an expression of opinion, the kingdom sees as terrorists and incitement. This happened like one day after the Biden visit. This is exactly what we were talking about for months and months. This kind of visit basically emboldens uh, MBS to go more brutal and more raw. He says President Biden failed by separating democratic values from strategic interests in his meeting with the crown prince, who's also known as MBS. When the Biden administration abandoned uh, human rights, MBS has the leverage and only MBS. The White House insists it will continue to stress human rights values. When President Biden was asked about whether he's confident there won't be another incident like what happened to journalist Jamal Khashoggi, he said that if there is, he'll respond. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Even before the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, there were barriers to accessing reliable and affordable birth control. There's getting a prescription, getting an appointment, having a regular doctor, or even just being nervous to ask. Now, as many states move to ban or restrict access to abortion, doctors and drugstores are reporting rising demand for birth control and emergency contraceptives. A deep dive into that story on today's episode of our daily news podcast, Consider This. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, jury selection for Steve Bannon's trial began today. The former advisor to Donald Trump is being accused of contempt of Congress. The week on Wall Street began with a downturn. The Dow fell nearly three-quarters of a percent, 216 points, to close at 31,073. S&P and Nasdaq lost more than three-quarters of a percent. The S&P finished at 38.31, and the Nasdaq closed at 11,360. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. Cambridge-based drug maker Biogen continues to shrink. The company tells the Boston Business Journal it has 300 fewer employees in the state than it did nine months ago. That's a drop of 11 percent. Biogen is cutting jobs to reduce costs after the launch of an Alzheimer's drug that faced criticism for its cost and questions about its effectiveness. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research, manufacturing, and development at vrtx.com. And Circus Smirkus, New England's traveling youth circus, in Marshfield, July 20th to 23rd, and Waltham, July 26th to August 1st. Tickets at smirkus.org. 
There's rain south and west of 128 right now, including in the Dedham and Norwood area. Showers, some wild winds tonight, some heavy rain at times, only falling to about 73 for a low overnight. And then two days of high heat tomorrow and Wednesday. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Against all odds, Ukraine's army has managed to hold off a full-scale Russian invasion, but now they face a protracted war while outgunned and outmanned by Russia. NPR's Emily Fang spent time with the soldiers who fought a key battle in Ukraine's east. The battle for control over the eastern Ukrainian city of Severodonetsk and its sister city, Lysychansk, was intensely bloody. I met some of the surviving Ukrainian soldiers at their base near the eastern city of Dnipro, two days after they'd come off a brutal three-month stint in Severodonetsk. It ended only after Ukraine's army withdrew. One of the soldiers is Oleg. He is 21, tense, and has no time for small talk. The firing was dense. Their only tactics revolved around artillery shelling. The Russians have so much ammunition, they could afford to shell continuously, and we didn't have enough ammunition to suppress their fire. When Russia invaded in February, his military academy let Oleg graduate early so he could enlist. Now he's responsible for the lives of more than 260 infantry soldiers at the very front lines of the war. We're only using people's first names in this piece so they cannot be located or identified in case of Russian attack. Of course I'm afraid of death, but I am a military commander. If I show fear, my deputies will be scared as well. I must be a lion leading my deer. The experience of Oleg and others we met gives us a glimpse into what a protracted war with Russia could look like. Dedication to protecting their country is extremely strong. But as the war drags on, the battalions are increasingly staffed by exhausted soldiers, plagued by a constant shortage of military experience, artillery and ammunition. Russia uses the same weapons as us, it's just they have more of it. If I set 100 mines a day, they set, say, 500. In terms of manpower, they have six men for every one soldier we have. This is Sasha the head of a mortar unit. His men spent three months living in underground dugouts and basements, running through forests outside the city on eight-hour shifts, packing artillery with new shells. Like all the soldiers we spoke to, Sasha praised the American and European weapons they'd received. The problem was there just wasn't enough. Though recently, Ukraine says it's hit about a dozen Russian ammunition depots using U.S.-provided heavy weapons. 
The specter of war stays with us. Here we miss the boom, boom, boom of war. It's too silent. On the front, silence means the enemy is loading their weapons and about to kill you. Oleg and Sasha's entire brigade is comprised of volunteers who enlisted in March. Some had military training from decades before, but most were fresh recruits, fired up by patriotism. At most, they got three weeks of training before shipping out. No, you asked me about training, so let me answer this way. I enlisted on March 22nd, and by April 4th, I was in Severodonetsk. That's Alexander, another soldier. He was a former solar panel installer. He's already lived through eight years of war, starting in 2014, when Russian-backed separatists seized territory in Ukraine's east next to his home. But nothing prepared him for the front. And now he's worried young volunteers are being shipped out without adequate training. It also means, long term, Ukraine's military will struggle to accumulate experience. Uh, the young soldiers are like a sponge. They absorb everything, but they need time to be cultivated. A commander may need 30 years experience, but they're 20-year-old boys who are giving their lives even though they haven't even seen life yet. Giving their lives to Ukrainian citizens who are not always grateful. Before this war, Ukraine was deeply split, with many people in the east, including Severodonetsk, openly pro-Russian. And what surprised Oleg, the head of the infantry battalion, was the lackluster welcome they received along the front lines from their fellow countrymen. They looked at us as if we were aliens from another planet. He says he saw videos on Russian social media with Ukrainian residents he'd met in Severodonetsk. He'd given food to some of them. But in the videos, they're welcoming the invading Russian soldiers. When we see on social media how they greet the enemy with open arms, it leaves a stain on our souls. Oleg's company will get less than two weeks rest before they're back at the front lines fighting again. And the casualties of this war are mounting. That human toll is evident in this hospital we visit. The head of surgery at this hospital in Krivijich, Dr. Oleksandr, says he's treated 900 frontline soldiers since the start of the war. But those were the ones who survived long enough to be brought to the hospital. I've treated soldiers before, but with the expansion of the battlefield and the use of deadlier weapons, the concentration of serious wounds has increased. Ukraine will not say exactly how many military casualties there have been. But Ukraine's President Zelensky says as many as 100 to 200 soldiers are dying a day. One of the lucky survivors is Yaroslav, a former Muay Thai instructor. In late June, a mortar exploded inside the roadside dugout Yaroslav was in. He still has flashbacks of the bits of skin and limbs that plastered the concrete walls. Some of the bits were his. At one point, his heart stopped, and he's been told he'll need six months for his shattered leg and abdominal punctures to heal. Recovery is hard, especially when I remember the pain and fear I saw in my comrades as they were screaming in that dugout. There was a lot of blood. I now have nightmares at night. The fear is ever-present. 33-year-old Konstantin remembers everything 
after a Russian missile hit a tank he was standing next to in June. I was awake even when they started cutting off the remnants of my clothes from me. I even remember how the rocket looked as it flew towards us. Konstantin's ginger beard is still blackened from his burns. His left forearm tattoo of a grove of bamboo trees is nearly flayed beyond recognition. I went blind and was thrown like a sack of potatoes by the blast. Pain coursed through my body. I could feel my right arm was wounded. I tried to put on a tourniquet, but I was so tired. And I thought, just let me die. But then I thought, no, I've survived so much. He survived, but his doctor clinically lists how he painstakingly put Konstantin's body back together, including a month of skin grafts using pig skin. Like some other soldiers in his regiment, Konstantin spent most of his adult life fighting. He was a former IT engineer, but he enlisted in 2014 when Russian-backed separatists took control of his home city in Ukraine's eastern Donetsk region. And he's optimistic he'll get better soon and rejoin the fight. We have to fight back against Russia, or else Russia will simply find new targets. But later, in private, Konstantin's doctor tells us quietly that his right ear and eye will never regain function. He hasn't had the heart to tell the soldier. It means Konstantin is no longer fit for military service, despite the fact that the Ukrainian military desperately needs more men like him because it is burning through them at a perilous rate. Emily Fang and Pure News, Dnipro, Ukraine. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, a light rain in the Boston area, showers and thunderstorms in some parts of the region this afternoon into tonight, some real downpours in some areas, only falling a few degrees from where it is right now, with a low about 73 tonight. National Weather Service says we could have oppressive heat tomorrow through Thursday, with spiking humidity, temperatures in the 90s, at times feeling closer to 100 degrees, 79 degrees now at 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. The Elliott Hotel in Boston's Back Bay, deluxe accommodations and kid-friendly personalized service where families can relax in one- and two-bedroom suites. ElliottHotel.com. And MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com careers. Terry Stone, Managing Partner of the Americas for Oliver Wyman, a WBUR underwriter. WBUR's programming is smart, creative, informative, and thought-provoking. Just like our clients and employees who look to WBUR to help them understand the world. We are very proud to support WBUR. To learn more about underwriting on WBUR, go to WBUR.org slash sponsorship. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Houston, Texas, a new gun buyback program will take place later this month in an effort to reduce violent crimes. Police say all members of the public will be able to turn in firearms with no questions asked in exchange for gift cards ranging from $50 to $200, depending on the type of gun. 
Harris County Commissioner Rodney Ellis says this will help reduce the number of unwanted guns on the streets. Guns are easier to get than it is to get child care, health care, a college education, and a decent job. We can't change all those systems overnight, and we know that. But we can take action by removing guns from the street. Commissioner Ellis says people deserve to feel safe in their community. The gun buyback event in partnership with the Houston Police Department will take place on Saturday, July 30th. Ukrainian officials say two top government leaders there might be reinstated after a probe is complete into alleged treason. This comes a day after the first major shakeup of the Zelensky government since Russia invaded. Here's NPR's Brian Mann. President Volodymyr Zelensky said late Sunday his top prosecutor and spy chief were being removed from office for failing to weed out government employees accused of collaborating with Russia. In a later interview with Ukrainian television, another top official again said there are, quote, packs of people in Ukraine's government who are aiding Russia. But the official also said Zelensky hasn't yet asked parliament to formally dismiss Prosecutor General Irina Venetitova or state security head Ivan Bakunov pending an investigation. This shuffling of Zelensky's government comes as Russia has renewed its offensive in the eastern Donbass region. Brian Mann, NPR News, Kyiv. A rocky start on Wall Street to uh, begin the week. Stocks finished lower across the board. The Dow was down 215 points about uh, six-tenths of a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. A proposed $52 billion annual Massachusetts state budget is now on Governor Charlie Baker's desk. This afternoon, the state Senate and House approved the spending package. It's about 10 percent larger than the budget for last year. Lawmakers say they have more financial flexibility now because tax collections have been stronger than expected. The budget calls for increased spending for areas including schools, behavioral health, and the MBTA. Massachusetts Congressman Stephen Lynch says he is taking steps to try to ease a crisis at the MBTA. Federal regulators have ordered the T to improve its safety after a series of derailments and the dragging death of a passenger. Lynch says he's involved in talks to help the team meet its goals, including boosting staffing. WBR Sydney Bowles has more on the congressman's assessment of safety on the transit system. Lynch tells WBUR's Radio Boston that offering less frequent service has helped make the tea safer. We've slowed down the frequency of these trips so that these workers are not working the long 16, 18, 20 hours continuously in those positions. Lynch says MBTA general manager Steve Poftak's record is mixed, but notes that Poftak took ownership when things went wrong. Recommendations from the Federal Transit Administration's review of the T are expected in the coming weeks. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sydney Bowles. Route 495 North is the site of some lengthy traffic delays this afternoon. A tractor trailer rolled over in Marlboro near 290. Nobody was hurt. But there's a six-mile backup on 495 North because the only bre- only the breakdown lane is open while crews try to clean things up. Keep an eye to the sky for possible severe weather this afternoon and this evening. Showers and scattered thunderstorms are expected to cross the area for the next several hours. National Weather Service meteorologist Kyle Peterson says a few of those storms may be severe. 
we'll definitely see lightning with any severe storms. The main severe weather threats we're looking at are as wind is the most likely. There is a small chance for tornadoes, though, especially in western Massachusetts. And by sunset, all these storms should start to diminish and then likely just looking at remaining rain showers after that. Peterson says street flooding is also possible in areas where storms drop the heaviest rain. After storms this afternoon and tonight, we're in for several days of temperatures at or above 90. High humidity for most of the state, including Boston. 79 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. A top Trump administration figure is now on trial here in Washington. That's former presidential advisor Steve Bannon. Prosecutors accuse Bannon of contempt of Congress for defying a subpoena from the panel investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. NPR's Carrie Johnson joins us from the federal courthouse. Carrie, what's been going on there today? We've got dozens of potential prospective jurors who filed into the courthouse just down the street from the Capitol, Juana. They've been answering questions such as whether they've ever written or said anything about the defendant, Steve Bannon. They've also been asked about whether they've watched or read any coverage of the House Select Committee hearings about January 6th. They've been patiently waiting in the hallways here all day, reading their phones or books or magazines. Okay, get us up to speed, Carrie. Remind us, what charges is Steve Bannon facing? Sure, this is a pretty simple case, just two counts of criminal contempt of Congress for blowing off the House panel's demands for documents and testimony about the January 6th siege on the Capitol. Bannon says he was following orders from former President Trump, who asserted executive privilege, but Judge Carl Nichols, an appointee of President Trump, Mm. didn't see it that way. For one thing, Trump's lawyer says that isn't what happened. The privilege is supposed to protect confidential conversations among people inside the government. But Bannon had already been gone from the White House for over a year. And one more thing, the current president, Joe Biden, has said the privilege should not shield information about the Capitol rioters or those who may have helped plot the worst attack on the government since the War of 1812. Okay, Carrie, you said this is a pretty simple case. What what could we see happen now? Next. Yeah, opening statements are likely Tuesday, and this is going to be a speedy trial. Prosecutors have only a few witnesses. They include an FBI agent and the general counsel of the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. The whole government case could take about a day, maybe less time than it took to select a jury here. And it's still not clear if Steve Bannon is going to testify in his own defense or what that defense might be. Right now, it seems the lawyers may argue that Bannon misunderstood understood the deadline to comply with Congress. But just last week, the judge hinted it's not entirely clear why this case is going to trial. Okay, Carrie, so even though Bannon didn't comply with the subpoena, we've been watching these hearings. The committee has still shown footage of Steve Bannon. He's been talked about at the hearings this summer. What might Steve Bannon know that would be important or relevant to the House investigation? 
Just last week, this House panel told us that on January 5th, 2021, a day before the insurrection, uh, they found phone records that suggest Bannon had at least two phone calls with former President Trump. After the first call with Trump, Bannon made some remarks on his podcast called The War Room. Here's what Bannon said that day. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's going to be moving. It's going to be quick. And all I can say is strap in. The war room, a posse. You have made this happen, and tomorrow it's game day. House investigators want to know, Juana, how Bannon came to believe all hell was going to break loose the next day and whether he was more involved in the planning of the riot, which, of course, left more than 140 law enforcement officers injured and several people dead in the days that followed. Still, lots of questions for Steve Bannon. Not clear we're going to get answers. NPR's Carrie Johnson, thank you so much. Thank you. In less than a year, crypto has collapsed. The total value of digital currencies is now less than a third of what it was in November when Bitcoin hit an all-time high. In the past couple of years, many people bought crypto for the first time. And now, as NPR's David Gura reports, they are having to cope with painful losses. When did crypto go mainstream? You could argue it was in October of last year. Back then, companies were spending tens of millions of dollars on marketing. They bought naming rights to sports arenas. And then... There were the ads, fronted by celebrities, including Matt Damon. History is filled with almosts, with those who almost adventured, who almost achieved, but ultimately, for them, it proved to be too much. That commercial for Crypto.com is all about FOMO. At the end of it, Damon turns to the camera and says, Fortune favors the brave. Michelle Lukowski downloaded the Robinhood app early in the pandemic, and she bought $500 worth of cryptocurrency a few months before that ad debuted. She's a manager at a large insurance company who lives outside Seattle. And like millions of people, Lukowski got swept up in the moment. Her son's daycare had closed, so she had some extra cash. The price of Bitcoin kept climbing. Crypto was in the headlines. And in 2021, it seemed like everyone including Academy Award-winning actors, was talking about it. You know, that that gives it some sort of approval that not just scammers are using it. Um, then I felt safe to to try it out, to put my money in there. Mokovsky bought thousands of dollars worth of Bitcoin as it approached its all-time high in November. Well, she remembers thinking, better late than never. So I definitely bought at the top. <sighs> well, today, Bitcoin is trading at less than a third of that dragged down by the same forces that stopped the stock market's record-setting run, the Federal Reserve's decision to hike interest rates to fight high inflation. Bukowski says she got into it to make a buck, and eventually she branched out from Bitcoin to other digital currencies. I bought a ton of the top 100 coins. Just I went down and I'd put like $10 in every coin, just kind of feeling like I was spreading my hedging my bet. Mokofsky says she watched YouTube videos about crypto while she was working out. And by the end of 2021, she'd spent about $30,000 on digital currencies. And I think when I said that number out loud to my family, I I was a little shocked. I remember thinking, wow, you know, that that is a significant amount of money. Mokofsky says she was careful not to risk more than she could afford to lose. And Ramiro Flores, another first-time investor, told me his approach was the same. He lives in Edinburgh, Texas. Flores worked for the local fire department, and now he does home health care for the elderly. Flores has owned Bitcoin since 2018. So to me, like, I like gambling. I go to Vegas quite a lot. So I was like, hey, you know what? Like, this is just like a little 
trip to the casino. The crypto downturn has been heartbreaking, he says. But as Flores has continued buying crypto, he's come to see it as more than a bet. Yes, he's trying to make money, but Flores also hopes it'll lead to big changes to the banking system and the global economy. Flores says he's in it for the long run. He's 31 years old. Like, right now, I'm down some money, but I'm like, hey, if I don't sell, I don't lose out. I don't lose that money technically, so I'm just going to keep on riding this little roller coaster that we're on. A few months ago, Michelle Mikofsky got off. She was worried crypto companies would run into trouble or go bankrupt, and several have. And the value of her crypto kept dropping. It's like there's definitely peace that comes with just selling off such a volatile uh, asset and that I don't have to worry. <laughs> Am I losing $500, $1,000 today? By May, she'd cashed out completely. She decided to cut her losses, which Mulkowski estimates were around $8,000. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Call it a potential comeback. After years of limits on how much Atlantic cod fishers can catch in New England, there's some promising new data on the fish that was central to building the region's economy. From the public's radio in Rhode Island, Ben Burke reports. Before Raymond Lees goes fishing, he stops by Radar's Trawl Gear in New Bedford, Massachusetts, where he buys custom nets that help him avoid certain types of fish. For commercial fishermen like Lee's, cod is known as a choke species, meaning fishermen catch so much of it by accident, they sometimes hit their quota and have to stop fishing for what they really want. I've been scalloping close to five years because I haven't been able to fish what I was traditionally trained to do, and that's chase cod fishing flounders. Shop owner Tor Ben Dixon is a former fisherman himself. As he trims a net design his family has been refining for generations, Ben Dixon says he's watched the number of boats fishing for cod out of New Bedford shrink by 90%. Well, we went from, you know, a huge fishing business as far as the ground fishing fleet's concerned of, you know, 300 boats down to, you know, 20 boats, which is what, two dozen, two dozen boats. Fishing ports up and down the East Coast suffered similar fates. It's been a long decline for a fishery that built New England. Back in the 1600s, tales of an ocean full of cod lured the pilgrims to Plymouth Rock. But after centuries of good catches, nets started to come up late in the 1980s. The federal government kicked foreign fleets out of American fishing grounds, and by the mid-90s, regulators closed areas of the ocean to American fishermen, too. Some areas are still closed because regulators believe cod never rebounded from overfishing. But new research from Kevin Stokesbury, a professor of fishery science at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, is challenging that claim. For the first time in about 20 years, we've seen and are tracking a successful year class of cod, and they seem to be growing at a very good rate. This healthy population of young cod hatched off the coast of New England three years ago. Stokesbury calls it the class of 19, and he says the group is already spawning. 
with three or four more classes like it, Stokesbury says the cod fishery could be back in business. If that happens, it wouldn't be the first time Stokesbury's findings shifted fishing regulations. In the 1990s, he devised a new way of counting scallops that opened up a tightly regulated fishery. The government already suspected scallops were rebounding to some extent, but Stokesbury's research upended what regulators had been saying for years. They thought there were two to three times as many scallops in there, and there were actually about 14 times as many. Restrictions loosened, and the growing scallop industry turned New Bedford into the highest-grossing fishing port in America. Local fishermen, in turn, have paid it forward. They donate boats, captains, and fuel to Stokesbury's research expeditions. His latest research on cod is under review this summer by scientists who will determine whether it should impact fishing regulations. Russ Brown, a scientist at the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, says current models still estimate Atlantic cod stocks are about one-tenth the size they used to be. Brown says Stokesbury's data is exciting. But he and other scientists remember a promising class of young cod that hatched around 2006 and failed to rebuild the species. They were fished and they were harvested. In order to rebuild a stock, you have to sort of preserve those spawners so that they're able to reproduce. Brown says scientists will have to wait and see if the class of 2019 matures enough to spawn the comeback everyone's hoping for. For NPR News, I'm Ben Burke in New Bedford, Massachusetts. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, a previously segregated Marine base in North Carolina. Some of the buildings used by the first black Marines are now being restored. That story is still ahead. Healthcare is a human right, unless it seems the financials don't work out. You're talking about the peace of mind for your citizens, that they have a hospital two minutes down the road. I'm Kai Rizdal, Rural Hospitals, and the healthcare gap next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. A heads up, if you're on 495 north of Boston now, a tractor trailer rolled over at the intersection of 495 and 290 in Marlboro just before 3 o'clock. Only the breakdown lane on 495 northbound is open now. Traffic is backed up for about six miles between Southborough and the crash site in Middleborough. Join us at City Space tomorrow at 6.30 for a conversation and performances that celebrate Boston's young artists, among them Boston's Youth Poet Laureate. Tickets are free. Go to WBUR.org slash events. 79 degrees now in the Boston area at 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios designed to help create a healthy planet and just society. Zevin.com slash WBUR. And Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at LizLinder.com. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with a reminder that this public radio station is a collaboration. Many of my colleagues are working in the middle of the night to bring you the latest information when you get up in the morning. You don't have to do that, but you can contribute in other ways like donating your old car. Turn your old car into Morning Edition, all things considered, and all the voices you trust. There's never been a more important time to strengthen your station. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. During the 1940s, about 20,000 men trained on a racially segregated marine base known as Montford Point. It's now part of Camp Lejeune. A project is nearly complete to restore key buildings used by the first black Marines. In a story that first aired in May, WUNC's Jay Price reports. The men who made the buildings worth saving are nearly gone. But a handful of the 300 or so surviving Montford Point Marines came back for the reopening of the freshly restored museum honoring them and what was once their mess hall. Retired First Sergeant William McDowell, who goes by Jack, flew in from Long Beach, California. He said the restoration is important to the Marines and the nation. I'm not one to dwell on the past. On the other hand, I think it's a good idea to keep in the minds of folks the way things used to be. There was a time when uh, the Marine Corps would have rather the fact that it was racially segregated was forgotten about. Not anymore. Montford Point Marine Association officials said the Corps treated them like a partner in the restoration project. Dozens of buildings from the Montford Point era had to be demolished after Hurricane Florence pounded Camp Lejeune with three days of wind and rain in 2018. Many were badly damaged and sat too close to the lower New River, where flooding and storm surges are getting increasingly common. Navy Commander Ross Campbell is Camp Lejeune's public works officer. So these older structures, uh, not only were they not really meeting the needs of the training mission out here, but they also represented significant risk as far as sea level rise. And so it was a good thing to be able to pull that back from the water's edge. That means the surviving Montford Point buildings are being shored up. They're wood replaced with waterproof materials, their shingles replaced with wind-resistant metal roofs, and their heating and cooling systems upgraded to prevent mold and wood rot from the area's infamous humidity. 97-year-old Carol Braxton, a retired master gunnery sergeant from Virginia, vividly remembers that humidity and worse. It was a swamp right near where we was. In the evening, just about dusk dark, the drill instructor would take us right by that swamp and make us stand at attention. And he would say, you in words, did you eat? Yes, sir. Let them mosquitoes eat. Braxton said the bites were so bad when he went home on furlough, his mother thought he had smallpox. And the verbal and physical abuse directed at the men seemed endless. Recruits were forced to smoke with buckets on their heads and blankets over the buckets. He heard one man was forced to drink his own urine. See, we were dog, as if we weren't human. The Marine Corps was the last service to allow black recruits and didn't do it willingly. That took an order from President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Milton McLaurin, an emeritus professor of history at UNC Wilmington, is the author of The Marines of Montford Point. He said the commandant of the Marine Corps at the time, Major General Thomas Holcomb, made his feelings clear. He said if he had a choice between 250,000 black Marines and 5,000 whites, he'd take the whites. I think that pretty much summed it up. They didn't want anything to do with African-American Marines. Jack McDowell, the retired first sergeant, came to Monford Point from his native Brooklyn and had a lower tolerance for racism than some of his southern counterparts. But he stuck with the Marines for more than 23 years, serving in three wars and earning three Purple Hearts. It was a long stretch of the Corps' early struggle to deal with race. As quiet as it's kept on the islands of Iwo Jima and Okinawa, 
there were African-American Marines there. And uh, at Okinawa, there were a couple thousand. But if you saw any photos or movie reels or, or newsreels or any movies that they made about it, you never saw any black guys. He's gleeful about one piece of forgotten history. Also, uh, when they ran out of blood and they asked for people to donate blood, a whole lot of white guys running around with African-American blood at them. During the Korean War, he became one of the first black Marines sent out to desegregate white units. I ended up being in charge of 28 uh, white guys. I was the only black guy in the outfit since 1950, and most of them didn't even know black guys were in the Marine Corps. And all of a sudden, here's one, and he's my boss. For the first few weeks, it didn't go well. Well, they were stunned at first. They didn't quite know how to take this new change. The sergeant that I relieved was rather belligerent. He kept using the N-word, so we had come to Knuckle Junction two or three times. <laughs> My busted lips and black eyes. <laughs> we fought, and the Koreans thought we were nuts. Months later, though, McDowell was wounded, and that same sergeant ran to help carry him to safety. And uh, complaining all the way, you know, using the N-word. After the war, that sergeant asked to work with McDowell, and they became close enough that McDowell later traveled to the man's funeral. He says some Montford Point Marines remain bitter about their time there, and he doesn't blame them. But he said he and many others went on to better lives than they thought possible. In 23 years of getting around and dealing with all kinds of people under a variety of different circumstances, uh, it helped me in many, many ways. It gave me uh, the ambition to go to school and get a degree. The combination of that plus the schooling, I found out that I wasn't afraid to make decisions. At 94 years old, McDowell says he knows every visit to his old boot camp could be the last. And he fears that after all the Montford Point Marines are gone, their significance may be lost too. As time goes by, I think this whole business of Marvel Point will sort of fade into oblivion. But some of the buildings they used will stand as a reminder, now armored better against time and storms. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. For photos of the Montford Point Marines and more, go to NPR.org. You can also hear more from the surviving first Black Marines and reporter Jay Price in WUNC's podcast, Tested. As the CEO of one of the five largest U.S. banks, Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon has a unique perspective on the health of the economy. His message to small business owners? It's probably a moment where you have to be a little bit more cautious, you have to be a little bit more flexible, you have to be a little bit more nimble because you might get things thrown at you. More of that conversation with David Solomon coming up tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR. Tune in on the radio or by asking your smart speaker to play your member station by name.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Angie, formerly Angie's List, dedicated to helping homeowners tackle home projects from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And from DuckDuckGo, a privacy company committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer private search and tracker blocking with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified. And from Jones Day, an integrated partnership collaboratively providing legal services for more than a century. 43 offices, five continents, serving clients as one firm worldwide. Learn more at jonesday.com. This is WBUR. Rain pretty much everywhere east of Route 495 now. Showers and some wild winds overnight tonight. Heavy rain at times, only falling to about 73 degrees for a low tonight. And then two days of the heat on high. Tomorrow should reach 93 with a cloudy start before sunshine breaks through for the bulk of the day. Gusty winds around. Wednesday, mostly sunny and hot, inching up to 95, but feeling pretty uncomfortable, just a light breeze. 77 degrees now in Boston at 459. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The trial began today for the gunman in the 2018 attack at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida. The shooting left 17 people dead and 17 others injured. The perpetrator faces the death penalty or life in prison. Today is Monday, July 18th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, as climate change warms the planet, volunteers map the heat in Jacksonville, Florida. The city will use the data to help neighbors where extreme heat is doing the most damage. The Colorado River is in crisis, causing water shortages across the southwest. Some officials are responding proactively. We're hoping that by voluntary cutbacks now, that alleviates the need for mandatory cutbacks in the future. More on how the city of Scottsdale, Arizona, is adapting to drought. These stories and the Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The self-described white supremacist charged in connection with the Buffalo mass shooting that left 10 people dead and three others wounded at a Topps supermarket has pleaded not guilty. NPR's Liz Baker has more on the defendant's arraignment today on federal charges. The shooter, Peyton Gendron, was indicted last week by a federal grand jury on 27 counts, which includes hate crimes and firearms charges for each of his 13 victims, plus one charge of planning to commit a premeditated act of terrorism. Gendron had already pleaded not guilty to state murder and terrorism charges and has been in custody since the May 14th attack. The 19-year-old faces maximum possible sentences of life in prison or the death penalty. In a statement announcing the federal charges, Attorney General Merrick Garland said he will decide whether or not to pursue the death penalty at a later date. 
Liz Baker, NPR News. In northern Europe, countries are bracing for temperatures well above 100 degrees this week, with the U.K. on course for record temperatures. As Esme Nicholson reports, the heat wave is prompting some governments there to issue emergency alerts about the high potential for heat-related deaths. Temperatures in northern Europe are expected to rise almost as high as those in Spain and Portugal, where hundreds of lives have been lost over the past week. Wildfires there continue to rage in temperatures above 110 degrees Fahrenheit and fire fighters in southwestern France are battling to control two major blazes made worse by strong winds and dry conditions. As the heat moves north, Germany's fire services are on alert as far north as the countryside near Hamburg. The government in Britain has issued a national emergency and has urged the public to stay at home, even though air conditioning in homes is the exception, not the norm. For NPR News, I'm Esme Nicholson in Berlin. The head of the U.S. Agency for International Development says widespread drought is pushing millions of people in Ethiopia, Somalia, and Kenya to the brink of starvation. NPR's Jackie Northam reports USAID is providing $1.2 billion to provide help to the region. More than 50 countries across Asia, Africa, the Middle East, and South America are being hard hit by hunger and malnutrition. USAID Chief Samantha Power says COVID-19, climate change, and long-simmering conflicts contribute to the problem. And Russian President Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine is what she calls the latest accelerant of human misery. Through his actions, he is waging a war on the world's poor, spiking food, fertilizer, and fuel prices while taking Ukrainian grain off the market. So things are going to get worse. Power is calling for more humanitarian aid, more donors, and a sustained investment in global agriculture. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Washington. Stocks lost ground to start the trading week. The Dow was down 215 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA says it needs about $300 million to deal with the safety issues identified by the Federal Transit Administration. MBTA General Manager Steve Poftak says he expects the final report from the administration next month will include additional fundings the T will also have to address. Findings will have to address. Poftak says the transit agency plans to hire 2,000 more people next year to grapple with the workforce challenges identified in that federal report. Slow traffic right now on Interstate 495 northwest of Boston. It's the result of a tractor-trailer rollover at the intersection of 495 and Interstate 290 in Marlboro. Happened just about 3 o'clock today, and it shut down most of the lanes of highway until just a few minutes ago. That's when all lanes reopened. There's still, though, a six-mile backup between Southboro and 290. Workers at a Starbucks cafe near Boston University are on strike. The union workers say management at the shop on Commonwealth Avenue inconsistently schedules employees. The union says workers have been underscheduled and what it says feels like punishment for their vote to organize. Striking workers say they want the location's manager removed. Starbucks released a statement on the strike saying it's doing its best to listen to the current concern of all employees. Workers at a dozen Starbucks locations in the state have voted to join a union. And Springfield's police superintendent is pledging her support for the city's police commission. The city council established the panel earlier this year to provide more oversight of the police department. The panel will have the final say on discipline. Police Superintendent Cheryl Claprood met with commission members last week and says she needs their help to weed out what she calls bad cops. I want you to have the best investigation going forward. I want you to have all the video or footage you can possibly get um, because that's the truth and that's what we're all after. You know, if I got a bad cop, fine. 
I want them separated from service. Springfield Mayor Dominic Sarno had fought plans for the panel's creation but lost his legal battle to block it. In the forecast, showers and thunderstorms around the region this afternoon into tonight could have some real downpours and strong winds, only falling a few degrees from where it is right now, so it should be a pretty muggy and mild night, about 73 degrees tonight. National Weather Service says we could have oppressive heat tomorrow through Thursday with high humidity, temperatures in the 90s, at times feeling closer to 100. This is WBUR. It's 5.06. WBUR supporters include Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Today, a jury in Florida has begun to decide whether to recommend the death penalty for Nicholas Cruz. He's the gunman who killed 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in 2018. Cruz has already pleaded guilty to those murders, as well as 17 counts of attempted murder for the students and adults he wounded. The sentencing phase of the trial got underway today. Jurors will have just two options, give Cruz life in prison without parole or death. NPR's Greg Allen joins us from the courthouse in Fort Lauderdale, and we will warn you that we're going to hear some disturbing details about the shooting. Hi, Greg. Hi, Ari. Like the recent mass shooting in Uvalde, the shooting four years ago in Parkland was done by a former student who rampaged through the school with a semi-automatic rifle. Tell us about what's going into this uh, sentencing phase of the hearing today. Right. It sounds too familiar. Uh, Nicholas Cruz was a troubled person with a long history of behavioral issues who'd been expelled from the high school in Parkland. He went to the school in February of 2018, taking an Uber and carrying in a bag an AR-15-style semi-automatic rifle and several magazines, some carrying as many as 40 rounds. After shooting more than 30 people, killing 17 of them, he dropped his rifle and escaped by blending in with a crowd of students who were leaving the school. He was arrested by police shortly afterwards, a few miles away. But the facts of the case have never really been in dispute since then. Witnesses identified him, their surveillance video. He recorded a video of himself before the shooting talking about it. And that video is key. Prosecutor Mike Satz says it shows that the shootings were planned and premeditated. And premeditation is one of the aggravating factors a jury will have to weigh in considering whether to uh, recommend the death penalty or not. And to help make that point in his opening statement today, Satz read a transcript of that video that was recorded by Cruz just three days before the murders. And this is what the defendant said. Hello, my name is Nick. I'm going to be the next school shooter of 2018. You know, the FBI actually received a tip about Cruz before the shooting, but it failed to act. The government eventually agreed to more than a $100 million settlement with the families because of that. What are some of the other aggravating circumstances the jury is going to be asked to consider? Well, Mike Satz laid out seven aggravating factors, any one of which could be enough to result in the death penalty, along with the premeditated nature, the fact that it was a mass killing, that it was done in a school, and that public officials, teachers, were killed, can all be considered aggravating factors. Another is that the murderers can be seen as heinous, atrocious, or cruel. And uh, by that, it, it's, it's, it can be a, a lot of different things. But in Parkland, many of the victims were shot numerous times. And sometimes crews returned to people he'd shot and shot them again. One victim, 14-year-old Peter Wang, was shot 13 times. Sats walked through each murder with the jury today, describing for them Cruz's path through the school building. And he told the jury they'll see it for themselves from the building's surveillance cameras. You will see the defendant on the first floor fire a rifle shoot and kill 
nine students, the athletic director, and a coach. Cruz later killed eight more people on the building's third floor, and he wounded many others. I'm sure it's difficult for the families to relive this, to see the shooter there in person. Are many of them attending? Yes, there are many family members here today. They've been waiting four years, more than four years for this day. One family member I spoke to, Tony Montalto, the father of Gina Montalto, one of those who were killed, says what's really hard is living each day without his daughter. Uh, many family members are pushing for the death penalty. They say they plan to be here to see it recommended by the jury. Some of the most disturbing evidence today were videos recorded by students on the day of the shooting. Danielle Gilbert was in her psychology class that day when Cruz began firing through the window of the locked door of her classroom. She said there was more than 30 students in the class. They ran to hide behind their teacher's desk. But in her words, she said, we were sitting ducks. And she testified today that she doesn't know why, but she started recording videos. That's a little bit of one of the videos that was played today. Four people were shot in Gilbert's classroom, including one, Carmen Shentrup, who died. The videos also had gunshots on them, and they were all very difficult for everyone in the courtroom to hear. Uh, have defense attorneys spoken yet? Do you know how they're planning to counter what appears to be a strong case by prosecutors? Well, the defense has actually delayed making its opening statement until after the state concludes in the, its, making its case in the coming weeks. But we know they're going to be talking about Cruz's history of behavioral and mental health problems and hoping that that will be considered a mitigating factor by the jury and uh, maybe help them escape the death penalty. NPR's Greg Allen in Fort Lauderdale. Thank you. You're welcome. The Colorado River supplies water to about 40 million people across the Southwest, but it is facing catastrophically dry conditions. The last two decades have been the driest in 1,200 years. At least six cities in Arizona, including Phoenix, have now declared water shortages. But as Catherine Davis-Young at member station KJZZ reports, one of the first to start cutting back was Scottsdale. In front of the Granite Reef Senior Center in Scottsdale, there's a parking lot on one side and a bus stop on the other. In between is a patch of gravel and drought-tolerant plants. All these trees, all these little bushes that are here, they, they just weren't there before? That was all just grass? That was all grass. So this whole area here was grass. Scottsdale Parks and Recreation Director Nick Molinari says six months ago, the little Xeriscape garden we're standing in was about 3,000 square feet of turf. Not a sports field or a picnic area, just a decorative space dividing the parking lot. So Molinari's department realized they could take the grass and its sprinklers out and no one would miss it. Which ultimately will result in approximately 330,000 gallons of water savings every year. These kinds of water-saving opportunities across Scottsdale have helped the city's government cut water use 8% so far this year. The city announced water reduction goals about a year ago, shortly after the federal government declared shortages on the Colorado River had gotten so bad, southwest states would start facing cuts. The cuts don't affect Scottsdale's residential water supply yet, but Brian Beesmeyer with Scottsdale's Water Department says the city wanted to act early. The condition on the Colorado is getting worse, and it appears that it will get worse before it gets better. So we thought it was the right thing to do. 
Beesmeyer's department has asked individual users and homeowners associations to cut their use by 5%. So far, residential users are about halfway to that goal. But Beesmeyer wants the city to lead by example. They're upgrading faucets in city buildings and turning off some fountains around town. And Scottsdale is also looking at new options, like how the city manages its water mains. Sometimes water sits too long underground, and it needs to be flushed out to ensure what comes out of taps is clean. And they'll typically go to a hydrant and they'll flush thousands of gallons out of that main to keep the water fresh and it just dumps on the ground. The city hired a New Mexico company to bring in a new technology that can filter that water and put it back. So far, Beesmeyer says that's saved the city about 3 million gallons of water. That's a tiny drop in the bucket compared to the shortages in the Colorado River's reservoirs. Still, Sarah Porter, director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University, says Scottsdale's 2.5% citywide reductions over the past several months are noteworthy. That's nothing to sneer at. But Porter points out only about 20% of Arizona's water goes to cities. We ought to be conserving, but we also need to keep in mind that the Colorado River issues go beyond turning the water off while we're brushing our teeth. She says cities are going to have to adapt in the years ahead. So while adjusting sprinklers or taking shorter showers won't end the drought, those actions can help local water managers. We're helping our city to stretch the water supplies the city has to cover more users. Beesmeyer says that was the idea behind activating Scottsdale's drought plan earlier than was absolutely necessary. We're hoping that by voluntary cutbacks now, that alleviates the need for mandatory cutbacks in the future. Because for a city that relies on Colorado River water, the future looks a lot drier. For NPR News, I'm Katherine Davis-Young in Scottsdale. Schools across the country nominated their Athletes of the Year last week. The University of Pennsylvania chose swimmer Leah Thomas for the NCAA Woman of the Year Award. Thomas made headlines back in March when she became the first known transgender athlete to win an NCAA Division I title. But this is a very close race, guys. Thomas inching ever so slightly forward. She placed first in the women's 500-yard freestyle race and had that event's fastest recorded time of the NCAA season. Leah Thomas pulling away over the final 150 meters. Thomas wins the NCAA championship. Her success quickly became a lightning rod for the debate surrounding transgender athletes and sports. Before transitioning, she swam for the men's team at UPenn. Thomas told ABC News in May that she was depressed and having thoughts of suicide due to gender dysphoria. She finally decided to transition, even if it cost her her swimming career. Thomas began hormone replacement therapy in 2019. Complying with the NCAA protocol, she joined the women's team in 2020 after taking a year off. I knew there would be scrutiny against me if I competed as a woman. I was prepared for that, but I also don't need anybody's permission to be myself. During that interview, Thomas said transgender women are not a threat to women's sports. Trans people don't transition for athletics. We transition to be happy and authentic and our true selves. Transitioning to get an advantage is not something that ever factors into 
our decisions. In June, the International Swimming Federation voted to ban transgender women from competing internationally unless they began undergoing hormone replacement therapy before the age of 12. That would keep Leah Thomas from trying out for the Olympics. The winner of the NCAA Woman of the Year will be presented at their convention next January. Come back and listen to the show tomorrow. A new collection of short stories explores how one family has dealt with decades of war, separation, and foreign occupation in Afghanistan through fiction. To hear that conversation, just turn on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play your member station. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the only abortion clinic in Montgomery, Alabama, shut down last month, but an organization right next door to it has found a way to offer reproductive health care to those traveling from far away. That story is just ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Circus Mercus, New England's traveling youth circus in Marshfield, July 20th to 23rd, and Waltham, July 26th to August 1st. Tickets at Smirkus.org. The week on Wall Street began with a downturn. The Dow fell nearly three-quarters of a percent, 216 points, to close at 31,073. S&P and Nasdaq lost more than three-quarters of a percent. The S&P finished at 3831. The Nasdaq closed at 11,360. It's been a tough season for Boston travelers at Logan Airport. New data from the flight tracking website FlightAware ranked Logan as the eighth worst airport in the country in the percentage of flights that have been canceled since Memorial Day. Data show 3.6% of flights out of Logan were scrapped in that time. Worst in the nation was Newark Airport, with nearly 8% of flights canceled. And then also right behind it was New York's LaGuardia and D.C.'s Reagan National. Airlines have blamed the weather problems or problems on uh, weather and on shortage of staffing. In the forecast, showers is spanning the region right now, light to moderate depending on where you are. There is one pocket of heavy rain right now in the Brockton area that's moving northeast toward Quincy. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from DuckDuckGo, committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer internet privacy with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified at DuckDuckGo.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Since the only clinic that performs abortions in Montgomery, Alabama, shut down last month, an organization next door has been threading a legal needle to offer reproductive health care. Some patients come from hundreds of miles away. Alabama law now limits abortion to cases where the mother's health is in danger with no exceptions for rape or incest. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett reports. Next door to Montgomery's shuttered abortion clinic is an organization called The Powerhouse. It's in an old southern home with a big front porch. 
It seems idyllic until you see the camouflage netting strung between the pillars to hide anyone sitting on the porch in the big wicker chairs. Mia Raven is the executive director. If you don't know my name, you know I'm probably the abortion lady. <laughs> That's what people call me if they don't know my name. Raven has a tattoo on her wrist that reads, Know Your Rights. She has neon pink hair. And she has another nickname from her years of advocacy for reproductive rights in Alabama. Uh, the pink-haired devil lady. <laughs> That's what the protesters called me. Raven has been protecting women seeking abortions from protesters for years. In 2015, she was working as an escort at the Reproductive Health Clinic in Montgomery when she heard that an evangelical Christian group opposed to abortion rights planned to rent the house right next door. And just put my foot on the curb between the powerhouse and the clinic. On a recent morning, Raven paced off the distance in the parking lot between the two buildings to show just how close they are. How far is that? Maybe 40, 45 feet, I think. She remembers thinking, back in 2015, about how close protesters would be able to get to patients if abortion opponents moved in. They could stand on the property line and literally reach out and touch the hood of a patient's car. The idea of that happening was untenable to Raven. So she worked to convince the landlord of the house next to the clinic to rent it to her, which she did. And she founded the powerhouse. Raven moved her patient escort operations there and recruited more volunteers to get people from their cars to their abortion appointments. Protesters would often yell at them and sometimes take their picture, but at least they were a safe distance away. Raven shared this recording of what it sounded like most days. Hey Mia, you doing all right? You need to repent and turn to Jesus. Stop being evil and wicked, Mia. Our protesters are a special kind of ugly and it's just, it's just hard. She developed a thick skin. But it was tough on patients. Raven and her staff developed tactics to shield patients, like using giant umbrellas. It's kind of like an umbrella dance, like a ballet dance, if you will, of just the way you walk with the umbrellas to shield that patient as much as you can. They also wore rainbow-colored vests that are actually copyrighted, so patients could distinguish them from protesters. Now that Alabama's abortion ban is in effect and the clinic is closed, most of the protesters are gone. With no patients to escort, the powerhouse has changed its mission. So just EC and condoms and... Raven takes an order from a young woman in her car in the powerhouse parking lot. EC, or emergency contraceptives, and condoms. I'll grab the condoms for you. Raven calls this new drive through service pro-choice assistance. We have plan B. We have condoms, latex and non-latex. We have pregnancy tests, we have urine strips, we have water-based lube, and we also have hand sanitizer. The powerhouse can provide all of this for free because donations are up since the Supreme Court ruling. In the first few days of the service earlier this month, powerhouse volunteers handed out reproductive health supplies, including 28 packs of Plan B, 70 pregnancy tests, and two dozen sheets that list the states where abortion is available. Raven's lawyer says that's all they can do. In between cars, Raven reflects on the death threats and bomb scares she's experienced over the years in order to help women. And I used to joke that I never wanted to go through that again in my life. But if it meant that the clinic could be open and seeing patients as it always had, I would do it every single day. And she says she'll continue to do it every single day as long as women need reproductive care. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Montgomery. 
extreme heat can be fatal, and climate change is making the world hotter. Researchers in Jacksonville, Florida, are trying to get a better understanding of how that affects their city and what could help. From member station WJCT, Brendan Rivers tagged along as volunteers mapped the heat. The sun's just about to rise as I meet up with University of North Florida biology professor Adam Rosenblatt in downtown Jacksonville. Over the past few months, he's been getting ready for today's citywide heat mapping project. I have the sensor in my hand. It's, you know, maybe two feet tall, and it's got a part on the bottom where you can attach it to the window, and then a part on the top that has the sensors. With that sensor attached to Rosenblatt's Prius, he'll be driving a predetermined route just north of downtown three times today, at 6 a.m., 3 p.m., and at 7. As he's driving, the sensor will measure temperatures. The goal is to create a map of heat for as much of the city as possible. And the reason that's important is because Jacksonville is already hot, but it's projected to get much hotter, which can become a serious public health issue, as well as an issue for infrastructure of the city. He's just one of 60 volunteers driving around Jacksonville with heat sensors today. High school student Grant Tucker and his father volunteered too. The 17-year-old started a climate change nonprofit two years ago called Consequences Incorporated. Our main goal is pretty simple, uh, save the world. Tucker first heard about the heat mapping campaign on the news. My parents were all for it, and they also got involved in the movement, and they realized, you know, it shouldn't just be my generation. I shouldn't be protesting, picking up recyclables. I shouldn't have to do these things, but it's the reality of the world. Jacksonville is the first and one of the biggest cities that will be heat mapping this year. It's part of an annual effort organized by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. Morgan Zabo with NOAA's Climate Program Office says the data collected will help communities better understand what's known as the urban heat island effect. Cities, roads, and buildings gain heat during the day, and then they radiate that heat back into the surrounding air, which can lead to cities being 15 to 20 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than areas with more green spaces. Temperature can vary dramatically among neighborhoods, too, with low-income and predominantly black and brown communities getting the hottest. Previous research showed that land surface temperatures in Jacksonville neighborhoods that were discriminated against under redlining policies are now close to 10 degrees hotter than tree-heavy historic neighborhoods, which tend to be wealthier and mostly white. Sabo says the data collected through this heat mapping campaign will be more accurate because it measures more things. So if you are to put your hand on the sidewalk, land surface temperature is how hot the sidewalk would feel. But this doesn't represent the human experience of heat. She says you also need to look at air temperature, humidity, wind, and more. And this heat mapping project does all that. Jacksonville will incorporate its heat map into a climate resilience strategy with things the city can do, like plant trees and protect green spaces. Chief Resilience Officer Ann Colonisi says an ongoing flood vulnerability study will factor into that strategy as well. And we'll be able to layer these two data sources together, fold in some census data so that we have kind of a complete picture of what vulnerability looks like in Jacksonville. Other places that are mapping their heat this year include Philadelphia, Nashville, San Francisco and Brooklyn. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Rivers in Jacksonville, Florida.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, how hard is it to get an antiviral pill to treat monkeypox? That story is still ahead. Heavy rain right now in Waltham and Quincy. There is a lighter to moderate rain elsewhere inside the 128 belt. The humidity is on high, 91 percent now. Tonight, some drenching rain possible. Overnight lows, not that low at all, about 73 degrees. Then tomorrow through the middle of the week, sunny skies, oppressive heat, 93 tomorrow, maybe 95 on Wednesday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. And Great Freedom Adventures, curated cycling tours inspired by the history and nature of New England. North Shore and Cape Tours booking now, greatfreedomadventures.com. Swing District Democrats fighting to stay in Congress say voters are paying attention to details about the January 6th attack on the Capitol. But they also say the threat to democracy may not be the deciding issue in the fall midterms. I will say I hear much more about inflation and the price of gas. Will the economy determine who controls Congress? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow starting at 5 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Gasoline prices continue to fall after hitting record highs along with inflation. AAA says the average price nationwide is now $4.52 a gallon, a drop of nearly 50 cents from the peak last month. During a White House briefing today, Biden administration advisor Jared Bernstein remained upbeat about the future of gas prices. We think it's reasonable to expect more gas stations to lower their prices in response to lower input costs and thus, barring unforeseen market disruptions, to see average prices fall below $4 per gallon in more places in coming weeks. Bernstein pushed back on those critics predicting we are headed for a recession. He countered, saying based on consumer spending, a healthy job market, and low unemployment, he's confident the economy is moving in the right direction. Former Vice President Mike Pence has endorsed Republican Karen Taylor Robeson for Arizona governor. It's the latest in a salvo of endorsements against the former president's preferred nominee. From member station KJZZ, Ben Giles reports. In a statement, Pence called Karen Taylor Robeson the best choice for Arizona's future. He joins former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and current Arizona Governor Doug Ducey in opposing the Trump-endorsed Republican in the race, former local TV anchor Carrie Lake. Chuck Coughlin is a political consultant in Arizona. Lake seems to be continually narrating a campaign, uh, hoping that the Donald Trump coattails can bring her home. Karen has a more sophisticated narrative, and she's capable of, I think, bringing this home on her own. The endorsements have elevated the Arizona gubernatorial primary into a proxy war for Trump's influence on the Republican Party. For NPR News, I'm Ben Giles in Phoenix. Stocks finish lower on Wall Street. The Dow lost 215 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. MBTA leaders say the transit system needs more money to make safety upgrades required by federal regulators. Last month, the Federal Transit Administration ordered the T to address safety problems by taking several actions. They include boosting staffing and speeding up maintenance. 
Today, T officials told state lawmakers in an oversight hearing that the system needs $300 million to make the changes. T General Manager Steve Poftek says he thinks the Federal Transit Administration will order additional steps next month when it issues a final report. I will say I think there will be additional costs and I think there will be they will be significant. I can't discern the the actual, you know, and anything would be pure conjecture on my part. The state legislature is currently considering proposals that would send more than $600 million to the T next year. Delays have nearly all cleared on 495 North and Marlboro after a tough afternoon. The tractor-trailer rollover at 495 and 290 shut down all but the breakdown lane on 495 North for about two hours today. That led to a seven-mile backup for most of that time. The road reopened about 30 minutes ago. Traffic is moving at the speed limit, except for a brief slowdown where the two highways meet. Nobody was hurt in the crash. Workers at a Starbucks on Commonwealth Avenue near Boston University are out on strike. Barista Taylor Dickerson is among them. She says the corporation assigned a new store manager two days after the workers voted to unionize. Dickerson says that manager has been cutting employees' hours. That's our primary concern, removing her, but we're also hoping that after she's gone, you know, we don't just get someone who is exactly like that. So we want a meeting at least once a month to kind of assess hours and staffing issues. The location is one of a dozen in Massachusetts that's voted to unionize. Starbucks says it respects the right of workers to organize and says it's doing its best to listen to the concerns of employees. Jury selection is underway in the case of a West Springfield man charged with causing a deadly crash in New Hampshire. The process of seating a jury began today in New Hampshire and the trial of Vladimir Zhukovsky. Prosecutors say he had drugs in his system when he veered his truck and the car carrier he was hauling into a group of oncoming motorcyclists that included Marines. Seven people were killed in that crash in 2019 in Randolph, New Hampshire. Zhukovsky has pleaded not guilty to charges of negligent homicide and driving under the influence. He says he was reaching for a drink when the crash happened. The average price of gasoline in the state has dropped slightly since yesterday. It's down 39 cents from one month ago and stands at $4.63 a gallon. AAA Northeast shows prices in Metro Boston average $4.82. The highest average prices in the state continue to be on Nantucket Island at $5.84 a gallon. The organization says prices are dropping because people appear to be driving less than expected and because of growing concerns about the state of the global economy. In the forecast, pretty darn murky this afternoon and tonight. Humidity 91%. Could have a series of showers and scattered thunderstorms into the night. Some of them will have a strong, damaging wind and drenching rain. Greatest risk is until 10 tonight. Should be pretty warm overnight, about 73 degrees. Then for tomorrow, clouds early, sunshine slowly breaking through. Windy and hot. Highs about 93 degrees. Then for Wednesday, sunny and hotter could reach 95. 77 degrees now in Boston at 536. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. 
It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Police in a suburb of Indianapolis say the three people killed by a man with a rifle at the Greenwood Park Mall yesterday all had Latino surnames, but it is not clear if they were targeted because of their ethnicity. And they also say a bystander saved many lives by using the handgun that he was carrying to shoot and kill the man with the rifle. Joining us now is reporter Katrina Pross with member station WFYI in Indianapolis. Hi there. Hi, good afternoon. Katrina, what do we know about the man with the rifle who started shooting? Yeah, so police say he was a 20-year-old white male who lived alone, and at this point there's nothing to indicate a motive or that he was part of any group. They've interviewed members of his family who say they were just as surprised as anyone that he would do something like this. They say he had multiple weapons that he legally purchased himself, and he fired 24 rounds of ammunition. You said that police say nothing to indicate a motive, anything social on social media or internet data that would indicate he had a reason to seek out victims or to be a mass shooter. No, not at this point. Police say he doesn't appear to have a presence on social media, but the investigation is being slowed by the fact that the shooter tried to destroy both his cell phone and a laptop. They say he was in a bathroom at the mall for more than an hour before he started shooting, and he dropped a cell phone in a toilet there. Police are trying to recover data from the phone and the laptop. Okay, so what do we know about the bystander at that mall who shot the man with the rifle? Yeah, so he's a 22-year-old from Seymour, Indiana, named Elijah Dickin, and he was shopping at the mall with his girlfriend. Police say he used the handgun he was carrying to kill the man with the rifle about two minutes after the shooting started. Here's Greenwood Police Chief Jim Eisen. Many more people would have died last night if not for a responsible armed citizen that took action very quickly within the first two minutes of this shooting. Police praised Dickens' skill as a shooter and said he fired 10 rounds from his 9mm Glock handgun. They say he had no police or military background. And they say it was legal for Dickens to have his pistol on him at the mall after the constitutional carry law that Indiana's legislature passed earlier this year. It's only been in effect since July 1st, and it passed over the opposition of several police departments and organizations. So far, Dickens has not made any public statements or comments. Katrina, what comes next in this investigation? Yeah, so police are trying to recover data from the cell phone that the, sh- that, that the shooter dropped in a toilet at the mall before he started killing people and from a laptop they found at his apartment, which was left in an oven at a high temperature with a can of butane next to it. Mm, okay. And lastly, what do we know about the shooting victims, the people who died there at that mall? Yeah, so we know that two were a married couple, Pedro Pineda and Rosa Miriam Riviera de Pineda, aged 56 and 37, and Victor Gomez, who was 30 years old. All three of them lived in Indianapolis, but we don't know any more about them at this point. All right. That is WFYI's Katrina Pross. Thank you for your reporting. Thank you. There are more than 1,900 confirmed cases of monkeypox in the U.S. The virus causes painful sores that can last for weeks. There are antiviral pills that can help people recover faster, but patients and their advocates say the treatments are too hard to get. NPR's Ping Huang explains why. The treatment is called T-pox, and it's a two-week course of pills. Kyle Plank is on day seven. You have to eat a fatty meal beforehand. So I eat like a bagel with cream cheese or a McGriddle or something like that. And then I take three of these pills uh, with a full glass of water. Plank tested positive for monkeypox this month. Monkeypox is the worst pain I've had in my life. And especially because it was like an internal sort of pain, it was very really hard to deal with. 
Plank is a grad student in New York City studying infectious diseases, and he believes the T-pox helped him get better faster. Within two days of starting it, I noticed that some of the, the pustules were actually shrinking in size, and some of them just kind of like disappeared back into my skin. So they didn't go through the normal progression that the lesions usually do. According to advocates in the queer community, Plank is one of the lucky few to access T-pox. The federal government controls the supply, but officials with the CDC and the Department of Health and Human Services declined to tell NPR how much they've given out. T-pox is made by SEGA, a drug maker that's worked closely with the U.S. government for years. Phil Gomez is the company's CEO. Given the nature of how it's developed, we only sell to governments currently. So the intent has always been for this to be stockpiled because if there's an outbreak, it's too late for people to order the drug. It was made to protect against smallpox, a much deadlier cousin to monkeypox. Smallpox was eradicated from the world 40 years ago, but some labs have samples and it's considered a bioterror threat. Gomez from SEGA says they developed T-pox by testing it on animals. So two animal models were used, monkeypox and monkeys, and rabbitpox and rabbits. In 2018, the FDA approved the drug through something called the Animal Rule. T-pox was effective at stopping smallpox-like viruses in rabbits and monkeys, and it was shown to be safe in a few hundred healthy people who took it in a trial. Rachel Roper, a virologist at East Carolina University, says the drug works across smallpox, monkeypox, and other related pox viruses because it blocks a protein they need to reproduce. And so it decreases virulence in the body tremendously because even though some cells get infected, they can't infect the next cells and spread it. But even though the drug worked against monkeypox and monkeys, the FDA only approved its use for smallpox in humans. And that has created dense ribbons of red tape for doctors and patients in the current monkeypox outbreak. There's enough T-pox in the strategic national stockpile for 1.7 million people. Dr. Robert Pitts, an infectious disease specialist at NYU Langone Health, has prescribed it to seven. Each time, it takes three to four hours of paperwork. Like every time I send a T-pox prescription, like I'm very cognizant of like, this is what the patient needs, but the work that I'm going to put into this is like more time than I have. The FDA and CDC consider T-pox an investigational new drug for monkeypox, so it comes with a lot of requirements. Prescribers like Pitts have to go through local health departments or the CDC to get the drug. They get consent forms from patients and submit progress reports. Patients themselves keep diaries of their treatments. Pitt says he knows the drug hasn't been used in a lot of people before and that the rules are meant to protect patients. Still, they make it hard to get T-pox to people suffering now. People have a very hard time, you know, accessing providers who are comfortable with this, so it's not scalable in any means. A CDC spokesperson told NPR that the agency is working with FDA to simplify the process and dramatically reduce the paperwork for patients and providers using T-pox. In the meantime, lack of access has turned patients like Kyle Plank into advocates. So now that I'm feeling a lot better, I'm feeling very like energized and restless because I'm still stuck inside. And I'm like, what can I do to make this better? Plank has been writing to his elected officials, pleading with them to make this drug more available for monkeypox. It does more than just help people feel better, he says. It could help stop the spread of the disease. Ping Huang, NPR News.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Long before Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, the richest man in America was a Minnesotan whose father struck oil in 1903. The son made his first million as an oil man at age 23, and he turned it into billions. NPR special correspondent Susan Stamberg says a new biography of J. Paul Getty is an exhaustive revelation of how the rich are different from you and me. Movies and TV have lots of perfectly dreadful rich families, the Gucci's. Ardo and Paolo, they're poison. They're an embarrassment to this company, and everybody knows it. They have to go. The Carringtons on Dynasty. Well, I didn't cause your accident, Crystal, just as I didn't cause your barrenness. So, if you've quite finished... I haven't. Nasty, deceitful, conniving... But James Reginato, author of Growing Up Getty, says that oil-rich dynasty is different. The Gettys, I I really don't see any scoundrels in the family. Are they they a close family? They really are surprisingly tight-knit. Sounds like they won't get their own TV series. There are lots of them. J. Paul had five wives, five sons, loads of lovers, 19 grandchildren, one an in-law of Elizabeth Taylor, 47 great-grandchildren. Today there are 57 living Gettys on four continents, and you can bet that not one of them needs to worry about college tuition. So, who was this patriarch with all those big bucks? Must have been a great businessman. And, says biographer Reginato, Getty had this... Good instincts, but also he followed science. He got the best geologists he could find, made educated decisions. And a lot of old-time oilmen sort of sneered at the idea that some damn bookworm could tell them where to drill for oil. J. Paul was always described as cold, mean, a tightwad, a skinflint. He was cheap. That part is true. Sophisticated, Reginato says. Loved art, travel, learning new things. He mastered Arabic to do business in the Middle East. You'd like him for a dinner partner. But in a BBC documentary, Getty said... I always wish that um, I had a better personality, could entertain people better was a better uh, conversationalist. Always worried I might be a little on the dull side as a companion. Interesting, no? Modest, self-effacing. He was not a great father, always away on business, but a doting grandfather. Here's a 1966 entry from one of the diaries he kept all his life. He died in 1976. Ronnie, Karen, and baby Chris here, a fine little fellow. Chris plays with the puppies, sugar and spice. Valuation of Getty Oil is $2 billion, $7 million net. I have 79% of it. That seems the essence of J. Paul Getty. A charmed life, touched by tragedy, a 16-year-old grandson kidnapped, eldest son dead at 49 from drug complications, other deaths, other drugs, but mostly golden years of success and achievement and pleasure from progeny's progeny, plus that grand diary finale, what he was worth. A billion here, a billion there, it adds up to real money. I guess. Susan Stamberg, NPR News.
Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, author Ingrid Rojas Contreras talks about her memoir and how writing it helped her after she lost her memory. That's coming up on WBUR. So by the time Biden arrived in Saudi Arabia this past weekend to go into this meeting with Mohammed bin Salman, the relationship was no longer just about security and oil, but there were all of these other new aspects that had come in and that was going to make this whole interaction much more complicated than it would have been in the past. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. 75 degrees now in the Boston area. There's a soaking rain over Lowell right now, a lighter to moderate rain elsewhere inside the 128 belt. Humidity is way up there, 91%. Tonight, some drenching rain possible. Overnight lows not too low at all, about 73 degrees. And for tomorrow, sunny skies, really hot, 93 degrees, maybe 95 degrees on Wednesday. 75 degrees now in the Boston area under cloudy skies. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 550. A lot of us talk to our cars when we're driving. In my case, it's mostly me saying, come on, come on, come on, please start. If your car's like that, then maybe it's time for a new conversation. Hey, I'm Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. Let's talk about donating your car, your old or unwanted car, whatever it is. It can be turned into Morning Edition, Wait, Wait, or Snap Judgment. Trust me, your car will understand. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The author Ingrid Rojas Contreras writes that even for Colombians, hers was a family surrounded by the strange. In her new memoir, that family story begins with her grandfather. He is The Man Who Could Move Clouds, the title of this book. The man she called Nono lived in a dusty northern Colombian town where he always dressed head to toe in white. So the fact that he was always in this white pants and suit and somehow kept it immaculately clean is always uh, beautiful and surprising to me. Nono had special abilities. People would hire him to ward off rain ahead of soccer matches or to banish ghosts. In Colombia, that didn't seem out of the ordinary. If I told anybody that my grandfather was a curandero and that people said that he could move clouds, nobody was surprised by that. A curandero is not exactly a fortune teller or a seer. Although Nono put the word homeopath on his business card, that's not quite it either. So I asked Ingrid Rojas Contreras how she defines the word. I've thought about this endlessly. Um, Curandero really means someone who heals. Um, And the closest English uh, word that I can come up with is medicine man, Uh, someone who, you know, can talk to the dead and has a lot of plant knowledge. Uh, Curandero sometimes heals through dreams. Um, Yeah, so someone who can do all of those things. Part of being a curandero, as you explain in the book, is telling stories. And so as I read this, I wondered whether being an author, a, a writer, a storyteller on the page is kind of a different version of being a curandero. I, I was thinking about that, too, as I was writing <laughs> Um, I really loved uh, learning about my grandfather and learning about one of the ways in which he healed had to do with listening to the stories that people told about their lives. When somebody would be in a stuck place, uh, he would recast the story that he had heard back to them, but with um, alterations. Hmm. Um, 
so that um, that person could, you know, potentially find an exit um, from the place that they were felt stuck in. So I do, I do think about how stories are maps of identity and are maps of what we've been through. And in that way, when we recast them or think about them in different ways, um, that they can provide healing for us. There's this uncanny parallel where you and your mother each suffered a serious accident. Each of you experienced amnesia afterwards. She fell down a well. You were riding a bike when somebody opened their car door into your path. How do you understand those parallels between your two lives? They're, they're so eerie and so bizarre to me. Um, and there's also a, a majestic element to them. I love that word majestic. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I really loved about my mother's relationship to my grandfather was that there are stories that repeat um, with his life and her life. And once I learned that or relearned as my memory came back that my mother had also um, suffered amnesia, I it felt like belonging to, to a story that takes generations to tell. Hmm. What surprised me most about the way you described the experience of being injured and going through amnesia was the joy you took in having no <laughs> memories, just the pleasure of leaving all identity behind. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, I, I just have this, this memory uh, of being struck and uh, hitting my head on the pavement. And the, the second that I just rose up from the ground, I felt a lightness that I've just never felt in my life before. Just freedom is the, is the way that I can think to describe it. Um, there, there was a moment where I didn't know really that I was in a body. Um, and there was a moment where I was just pure experience. So I was seeing sunlight and I was seeing wind and there was a way in which I was also those things. Um, and so it was just an incredible feeling of connection and a very stark sense of peace and, yeah, belonging. There's a section of the book that I can't get out of my head where you describe being in your 20s and you, and you write, I wrote from real life and when Northerners advised me it was fiction, I conceded that maybe it was. So others were categorizing your lived experience as magical realism. So... Could you describe that experience of living in a context where the magical feels routine and people tell you that your real life is fiction and this sort of disconnect, these rules that are imposed upon you? When I came to the U.S., uh, sometimes when I would share stories of my family, I would be corrected or I would be investigated. And I was writing those stories down. I was often told that it was fiction. And I think that there was something about being an immigrant and being new and feeling very uncertain, um, you know, not knowing exactly where I stood in the country that I really felt that maybe I was wrong. It took many years for me to, to get out of that and to realize that that's a version of just trying to er erase different worldviews. Once I realized that, I had so much energy and so much love for this story and just really wanted to, to do it justice. You and I actually have something in common. Uh, my grandmother 
was a fortune teller who worked at carnivals. And when I was a kid, she taught me how to read cards. And like you, I started doing it for other kids at school. And <laughs> like you, I abruptly stopped one day. Mm. What do you think we leave behind when we close that door? Mm. I, I love that we shared that. <laughs> um, I don't know about what your experience was. When I was reading cards for for kids at my school, it um, it was very um, entrancing and it, and it was very, very fun and very diverting thing to do. And I think at some points um, when you when you become good at readings, that people start to share their kind of deepest secret lives with you. And for me, I often felt that it that it was such a big responsibility and I didn't feel that I was ready to to meet that responsibility. We were kids. We were kids, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think that maybe what we leave behind is um, a notion of trying to know with a different part of ourselves or a notion of trying to see another person through a mechanism that allows us to tap into something else that is not quite our conscious mind. Ingrid Rojas Contreras, her new memoir is The Man Who Could Move Clouds. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much. This was such a joy. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from iDrive, providing cloud backup, full system backup, and on-site iDrive appliance, to protect PCs, Macs, and servers from data loss due to crashes and ransomware at idrive.com NPR. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Lemelson Foundation. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Much of the continent of Europe is dealing with a record-breaking heat wave, and forecasters in the UK say the worst is yet to come. The brutality of the heat that we're expecting tomorrow is quite astounding. Um, and it does worry me a lot. We'll hear how London is coping with the searing conditions. It's Monday, July 18th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The heat wave scorching Europe is part of a global trend this summer of extreme weather. Policymakers, especially in the US, are failing to take steps to prevent things from getting even more dire. 
Saudi leaders view their summit with President Biden as a success, but human rights advocates worry about the message the diplomatic outreach sent to the kingdom. And the war in Ukraine has no end in sight as soldiers in Ukraine are outgunned and outmanned by Russia, and their mounting casualties are taking a toll. Wall Street starts up the week down. These stories and more just ahead. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. In Florida, a sentencing trial is now underway for Nicholas Cruz. He is the gunman who killed 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. NPR's Greg Allen reports the jury will have two options, give Cruz life in prison or the death penalty. The jury will weigh aggravating and mitigating factors to considering whether to recommend the death penalty. The prosecution laid out seven potential aggravating factors, including that there were multiple victims, that it was done at a school and was planned beforehand. In his opening statement, prosecutor Mike Satz told jurors he would speak to them about the unspeakable. About this defendant's goal-directed, planned, systematic murder, mass murder. The defense is expected to present evidence and testimony of Cruz's history of behavioral and mental health problems, but is delaying its opening statement until the state concludes making its case. Greg Allen, NPR News, Fort Lauderdale. Dr. Anthony Fauci says he plans to step down from his current position sometime before the end of President Biden's term, though he says he has yet to make up his mind on exact timing of his departure. The nation's top infectious disease expert says he's been saying for some time now there is a finite element to his tenure as director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. The 81-year-old Fauci says he'll leave his job sometime before January of 2025. He tells NPR he's not sure what he'll do after he leaves his current position. One of two men are directly charged in the deaths of 53 people trapped in a sweltering trailer in San Antonio appeared in federal court today. Texas Public Radio's Joy Palacios reports prosecutors allege Christian Martinez has worked as the driver in previous human smuggling operations. U.S. attorneys say 28-year-old Christian Martinez of Palestine, Texas, makes his living off human smuggling. Testimony from a special agent with Homeland Security claim Martinez has coordinated human smuggling with the driver, Omero Zamorano, at least three times. He said a cell phone number registered to Martinez was listed in Zamorano's phone under the nickname Gordito, and the two were allegedly texting on the day of the incident, including pickup and drop-off coordinates and a truck manifest. But defense attorneys question his involvement, saying Martinez is unable to read or write and is homeless and jobless. A request for house arrest at his mother's house was denied. He and the driver could face the death penalty or life in prison. I'm Joy Palacios in San Antonio. With temperatures soaring in parts of the west and southwest, demand in some areas reached a new record Friday will likely continue to rise this week, forcing homes and businesses to keep their air conditioning running. Texas Electric Reliability Council urged consumers to conserve energy if possible, and overall the U.S. is poised to use record amounts of power this year, in part due to rising population levels in so-called sunbelt states. Stocks gave back their early session gains. The Dow dropped 215 points today. You're listening to NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. A proposed $52 billion annual Massachusetts state budget is now on Governor Charlie Baker's desk. This afternoon, the state Senate and House approved the spending package. It's about 10 percent larger than last year's budget. Lawmakers say they have more financial flexibility now because tax collections have been stronger than expected. The budget calls for increased spending for many areas, including schools, behavioral health, and the MBTA. Massachusetts Congressman Stephen Lynch says he is making an effort to help ease the crisis at the MBTA. 
Federal regulators have ordered the tea to improve its safety following a series of derailments and the dragging death of a passenger. Lynch says he's involved in talks to help the team meet its goals, including improving staffing. WBR Sydney Bowles has more on the congressman's assessment of safety on the transit system. Lynch tells WBUR's Radio Boston that offering less frequent service has helped make the tea safer. We've slowed down the frequency of these trips so that these workers are not working the long 16, 18, 20 hours continuously in those positions. Lynch says MBTA general manager Steve Poftak's record is mixed, but notes that Poftak took ownership when things went wrong. Recommendations from the Federal Transit Administration's review of the T are expected in the coming weeks. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sydney Bowles. Red Sox pitcher Chris Sale is recovering from surgery to repair a broken pinky on his pitching hand. He broke it yesterday when he was hit by a line drive and a loss to the Yankees in just his second game of the season. The team says Sale underwent finger surgery today in Wellesley. Sale says he thinks he'll miss four to six weeks. Keep an eye to the sky for possibly severe weather this evening. Showers and scattered thunderstorms are expected to cross the area for the next several hours. National Weather Service meteorologist Kyle Peterson says a few of those storms may be severe. We'll definitely see lightning with any severe storms. The main severe weather threats we're looking at are as wind is the most likely. There is a small chance for tornadoes, though, especially in western Massachusetts. And by sunset, all these storms should start to diminish and then likely just looking at remaining rain showers after that. Peterson says street flooding is possible in areas where storms drop heavy rain. After the storms this evening and tonight, we're in for several days of temperatures at 90 or above with high humidity for most of the state, including Boston. 75 degrees now, but pretty muggy out there. It's 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Europe is reeling from a record-breaking heat wave this week, with forest fires raging in France, Spain, and Portugal, and the UK has declared a national emergency. The country's weather forecasters have issued a high-level heat alert for this first time. Scientists say these kind of extreme temperatures, once rare, will become increasingly frequent in Europe and in Britain thanks to global climate change. Villa Marx reports from London. The mercury rose Monday right across Wales and southern England, with London among the hottest of hotspots. Many residents of the capital sought relief in the city's open spaces, including midwife Carly Shelley sunning herself in Haggerston Park. Because we live in the city, like we all live in these little concrete boxes, right? We're quite high up, we're on the fifth floor. So, you know, the heat rises. Like, not many people have gardens in London, you know? You're really blessed if you had a garden. So, I mean, we're lucky we're in the park. City life is harsh in the heat. Her young daughter, Beulah, seems a lot less bothered, perhaps since school was cancelled for the day. I love it because I can do water fights and stuff like that, and I can have fun with my friends. 
Prime Minister Boris Johnson may be on his way out, but the UK government itself was still responding to the soaring temperatures, Cabinet Office Minister Kit Malthouse told Sky News. As it became clear that the, the weather was going to produce this record heat and there's a, a strong possibility that we'll hit the all-time record in the next 48 hours, we have been in close contact with all the public services to make sure that they are as ready as they can be. Many schools have closed earlier, some shut entirely, with kids that did attend allowed to ditch their usual uniforms. Hospitals cancelled surgeries as operating theatres overheated and train schedules slowed or were slashed entirely. Emergency services, particularly ambulances, have been on high alert with thousands of extra staff on call. Care workers, meanwhile, were required to check in more frequently on older and more vulnerable patients. Here at one London airport, Luton, the excess heat even melted a runway, diverting incoming flights and delaying some departures for hours. Government Minister Malthouse said authorities should see this situation as an educational experience for longer term climate changes. We're sort of getting everybody stood up and ready uh, for the next 48 hours and we just need to, to get through that, learn from it and then wait for the cooler air to arrive on Wednesday. Outgoing Prime Minister Johnson has faced severe criticism Monday for skipping a national security meeting that was focused on the response. The country's only Green Party legislator, Caroline Lucas, said his government is using a, quote, watering can to combat what she called a climate emergency. What's needed instead, she said, was a giant fire hose. For NPR News, I'm Villa Marks at London Luton Airport. And Europe isn't the only place getting hit with searing heat this week. China is facing another week of extreme temperatures. In the U.S., Texas, California, and the Central Plains states all have excessive heat warnings in effect. So to talk about this, we're joined by Laura Benchoff of NPR's climate team. Hey, Laura. Good afternoon. Uh, extreme heat hitting a lot of places all at once. How direct is the link to climate change here? This is exactly the pattern that scientists say plays out with climate change. Heat waves are getting more common and they're getting more intense. Scientists are finding that some heat waves, like the record-breaking one in the Pacific Northwest last year, would be virtually impossible without human-caused climate change. And remember, this is what we're seeing with the planet having warmed about two degrees Fahrenheit since pre-industrial times. This trend is expected to just keep getting worse as global average temperatures rise. And in many places, temperatures alone aren't the only danger. It's also the humidity. Uh, speaking to you from here in Washington, D.C., <laughs> I know how miserable humidity can feel, but explain why it's actually more dangerous than high heat alone. So it has to do with our ability to sweat. You know, the basic idea is your body sweats, the sweat evaporates off your skin, and it cools our bodies in that process, right? But high humidity makes that more difficult. NPR spoke to Larry Kenny, a professor of physiology, about that. He has a lab at Penn State University where he cranks up the heat and humidity, and then he has people on a treadmill to see how their bodies respond. He says humidity has a big effect. Only sweat that evaporates has any ability to cool the body. And so as the absolute humidity increases, when it gets close to the humidity of the sweat on the skin, it can no longer evaporate. So basically you can be covered in sweat but if it's not evaporating, you're not getting any cooler. Hmm. And out in the real world, the temperature might not seem that high, but if the humidity is super high, it's still really dangerous. So climate change is increasing heat waves. Is it also increasing humidity? 
studies are finding that it is. And that's because warmer air can hold more water vapor, which means more humidity. So as the climate warms, scientists say we need to pay attention not just to the overall temperature, but something called the wet bulb temperature that takes humidity into account. And Kenny's lab recently found that the maximum wet bulb temperature that humans can endure is 88 degrees Fahrenheit at 100% humidity. He says even if you're just sitting in the shade, you're at risk of heat stroke and even death in those conditions. People need to understand that heat is the most deadly of all weather-related fatalities, much more so than tornadoes, hurricanes, all other things combined that it is dangerous, and in particular, it's dangerous to vulnerable populations like the elderly. He says a good thing to keep tabs on is the heat index from the National Weather Service, which takes humidity into account. Let's talk about the effort to address all of this, because climate action seems to have stalled in the U.S. at least. Democrats were hoping to pass major climate spending, but last week, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia pulled his support. What option do Democrats have right now? You know, they're still hoping to push climate spending through. This is billions of dollars for things like subsidies for electric cars and renewable energy. And Democrats have argued that energy costs are a big part of inflation right now. And so these incentives could help with those costs in the long term. But Manchin has said he wants to see what happens with inflation before making the deal. So right now, a big spending package is off the table. Some hope that, you know, he'll come back to the table. These subsidies could get through later or they could be split up and passed on a piecemeal basis. Now, the White House released a statement last week saying if the Senate wouldn't act on climate change, then President Biden would use executive orders to further his climate agenda. All right. That's NPR's Laura Benshoff. Thanks for your coverage, Laura. Thank you so much. In Saudi Arabia, the dust is settling a little on President Biden's short visit over the weekend. Top Saudi officials are touting a return to the status quo of U.S.-Saudi relations. Meanwhile, Saudi dissidents and human rights activists abroad say that Biden's friendly optics with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has already had consequences. NPR's Fatma Tanis reports from Jeddah. After years of concerns about American engagement in the region, President Biden's visit appears to have set the record straight for the time being. What we have seen through the summit and the communiques is that America has affirmed its presence in the Middle East. According to President Biden, America is not going anywhere. And this was needed to be said. That's Badr al-Saif, professor of history at Kuwait University. Since Biden's return to the U.S., high-level Saudi officials have expressed satisfaction on local and international media for what they see as a return to normalcy in U.S.-Saudi relations. And al-Saif says it shows their confidence. The Middle East, the Gulf in particular, is more resurgent. It's more confident of its abilities. The White House says Saudi Arabia agreed to work on ending the war in Yemen, working toward energy market stability, and made a historic gesture toward Israel by opening its airspace to commercial flights going to or from Israel. But the Saudi leadership had its own spin on that. No, there are, uh, this has nothing to do with diplomatic ties with Israel. That's Prince Faisal bin Farhan, the Saudi foreign minister, at a press conference after the summit. We hope uh, that it will make uh, some travelers' lives easier. It's uh, not uh, in any way uh, a, pre uh, a precursor to any further steps. Al-Saif says Saudis want to keep up pressure on Israel to end its occupation of land Palestinians seek for an independent state. Saudi Arabia will not normalize until 
they get an answer on the proposal that they put forward in 2002 in Beirut, land for peace. Meanwhile, Saudi dissidents abroad and human rights activists have been raising alarms about Biden's meeting with the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and their now famous fist bump greeting. Abdullah Aloud in Washington is the director of Gulf Affairs at Democracy for the Arab World Now, and he says the consequences are already visible. They are going after dissidents and they are calling them terrorists. He's referring to comments on the BBC made by a top Saudi official who said what the West views as dissidents and expression of opinion, the kingdom sees as terrorists and incitement. This happened like one day after the Biden visit. This is exactly what we were talking about for months and months. This kind of visit basically emboldens uh, MBS to go more brutal and more raw. He says President Biden failed by separating democratic values from strategic interests in his meeting with the crown prince, who's also known as MBS. When the Biden administration abandoned uh, human rights, MBS has the leverage and only MBS. The White House insists it will continue to stress human rights values. When President Biden was asked about whether he's confident there won't be another incident like what happened to Jamal Khashoggi, who was killed in an operation the U.S. says was approved by the Crown Prince, the president said, if that happens again, he'll respond. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Even before the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, there were barriers to accessing reliable and affordable birth control. There's getting a prescription, getting an appointment, having a regular doctor, or even just being nervous to ask. Now, as many states move to ban or restrict access to abortion, doctors and drugstores are reporting rising demand for birth control and emergency contraceptives. A deep dive into that story on today's episode of our daily news podcast, Consider This. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, we'll talk with some of the frontline soldiers in Ukraine. The week on Wall Street began with a downturn. The Dow fell nearly three-quarters of a percent, 216 points, to close at 31,073. S&P and Nasdaq lost more than three-quarters of a percent. S&P finished at 3831. The Nasdaq closed at 11,360. Cambridge-based drugmaker Biogen continues to shrink, the company tells the Boston Business Journal. It has 300 fewer employees in Massachusetts than it did nine months ago. That's a drop of 11 percent. Biogen is cutting jobs to reduce costs after the launch of an Alzheimer's drug that faced criticism for its cost and questions about its effectiveness. Few insurers cover the drug, and Medicare and Medicaid have limited the number of patients who can get it. And it's been a tough season for travelers at Logan Airport. New data from the flight tracking website FlightAware rank Logan as the eighth worst airport in the country, and the percent of flights that have been canceled since Memorial Day, 3.6 percent of flights. Worst in the nation was Newark Airport, followed by New York's LaGuardia and D.C.'s Reagan National Airport. It's 619. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices. Catering your office lunch in Greater Boston, lacuchara.com. And Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at lizlinder.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. Got some heavy pockets of rain now in the Merrimack Valley and along the south coast. Thunderstorms off and on into the nighttime hours. Overnight lows about 73 tomorrow. Early morning clouds, then bright skies, blistering temperatures, 93 for a high. Wednesday is still sunny and even hotter, creeping up to 95. 75 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Against all odds, Ukraine's army has managed to hold off a full-scale Russian invasion, but now they face a protracted war while outgunned and outmanned by Russia. NPR's Emily Fang spent time with the soldiers who fought a key battle in Ukraine's east. The battle for control over the eastern Ukrainian city of Severodonetsk and its sister city, Lysychansk, was intensely bloody. I met some of the surviving Ukrainian soldiers at their base near the eastern city of Dnipro, two days after they'd come off a brutal three-month stint in Severodonetsk. It ended only after Ukraine's army withdrew. One of the soldiers is Oleg. He is 21, tense, and has no time for small talk. The firing was dense. Their only tactics revolved around artillery shelling. The Russians have so much ammunition, they could afford to shell continuously, and we didn't have enough ammunition to suppress their fire. When Russia invaded in February, his military academy let Oleg graduate early, so he could enlist. Now he's responsible for the lives of more than 260 infantry soldiers at the very front lines of the war. We're only using people's first names in this piece so they cannot be located or identified in case of Russian attack. Of course I'm afraid of death, but I am a military commander. If I show fear, my deputies will be scared as well. I must be a lion leading my deer. The experience of Oleg and others we met gives us a glimpse into what a protracted war with Russia could look like. Dedication to protecting their country is extremely strong. But as the war drags on, the battalions are increasingly staffed by exhausted soldiers, plagued by a constant shortage of military experience, artillery and ammunition. Russia uses the same weapons as us, it's just they have more of it. If I set 100 mines a day, they set, say, 500. In terms of manpower, they have six men for every one soldier we have. This is Sasha, the head of a mortar unit. His men spent three months living in underground dugouts and basements, running through forests outside the city on eight-hour shifts, packing artillery with new shells. Like all the soldiers we spoke to, Sasha praised the American and European weapons they'd received. The problem was there just wasn't enough. Though recently, Ukraine says it's hit about a dozen Russian ammunition depots using U.S.-provided heavy weapons. The specter of war stays with us. Here, we miss the boom, boom, boom of war. It's too silent. On the front, silence means the enemy is loading their weapons and about to kill you. 
Oleg and Sasha's entire brigade is comprised of volunteers who enlisted in March. Some had military training from decades before, but most were fresh recruits, fired up by patriotism. At most, they got three weeks of training before shipping out. You asked me about training, so let me answer this way. I enlisted on March 22nd, and by April 4th, I was in Severodonetsk. That's Alexander, another soldier. He was a former solar panel installer. He's already lived through eight years of war, starting in 2014, when Russian-backed separatists seized territory in Ukraine's east next to his home. But nothing prepared him for the front. And now he's worried young volunteers are being shipped out without adequate training. It also means, long term, Ukraine's military will struggle to accumulate experience. The young soldiers are like a sponge. They absorb everything, but they need time to be cultivated. A commander may need 30 years' experience, but they're 20-year-old boys who are giving their lives even though they haven't even seen life yet. Giving their lives to Ukrainian citizens who are not always grateful. Before this war, Ukraine was deeply split, with many people in the east, including Severodonetsk, openly pro-Russian. And what surprised Oleg, the head of the infantry battalion, was the lackluster welcome they received along the front lines from their fellow countrymen. They looked at us as if we were aliens from another planet. He says he saw videos on Russian social media with Ukrainian residents he'd met in Severodonetsk. He'd given food to some of them. But in the videos, they're welcoming the invading Russian soldiers. When we see on social media how they greet the enemy with open arms, it leaves a stain on our souls. Oleg's company will get less than two weeks rest before they're back at the front lines fighting again. And the casualties of this war are mounting. That human toll is evident in this hospital we visit. The head of surgery at this hospital in Krivijich, Dr. Oleksandr, says he's treated 900 frontline soldiers since the start of the war. But those were the ones who survived long enough to be brought to the hospital. I've treated soldiers before, but with the expansion of the battlefield and the use of deadlier weapons, the concentration of serious wounds has increased. Ukraine will not say exactly how many military casualties there have been. But Ukraine's President Zelensky says as many as 100 to 200 soldiers are dying a day. One of the lucky survivors is Yaroslav, a former Muay Thai instructor. In late June, a mortar exploded inside the roadside dugout Yaroslav was in. He still has flashbacks of the bits of skin and limbs that plastered the concrete walls. Some of the bits were his. At one point, his heart stopped, and he's been told he'll need six months for his shattered leg and abdominal punctures to heal. Recovery is hard, especially when I remember the pain and fear I saw in my comrades as they were screaming in that dugout. There was a lot of blood. I now have nightmares at night. The fear is ever-present. 33-year-old Konstantin remembers everything after a Russian missile hit a tank he was standing next to in June. I was awake even when they started cutting off the remnants of my clothes from me. I even remember how the rocket looked as it flew towards us. Konstantin's ginger beard is still blackened from his burns. His left forearm tattoo of a grove of bamboo trees is nearly flayed beyond recognition. 
I went blind and was thrown like a sack of potatoes by the blast. Pain coursed through my body. I could feel my right arm was wounded. I tried to put on a tourniquet, but I was so tired. And I thought, just let me die. But then I thought, no, I've survived so much. He survived, but his doctor clinically lists how he painstakingly put Konstantin's body back together including a month of skin grafts using pig skin. Like some other soldiers in his regiment, Konstantin spent most of his adult life fighting. He was a former IT engineer, but he enlisted in 2014 when Russian-backed separatists took control of his home city in Ukraine's eastern Donetsk region. And he's optimistic he'll get better soon and rejoin the fight. We have to fight back against Russia, or else Russia will simply find new targets. But later, in private, Konstantin's doctor tells us quietly that his right ear and eye will never regain function. He hasn't had the heart to tell the soldier. It means Konstantin is no longer fit for military service, despite the fact that the Ukrainian military desperately needs more men like him, because it is burning through them at a perilous rate. Emily Fang and Pure News, Nipro, Ukraine. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox are off tonight for the All-Star break. Pitcher Chris Sale is recovering from surgery today to repair a broken pinky on his pitching hand. He was hit by a line drive yesterday in just his second game of the season. Sale says he thinks he will miss four to six weeks. Thunderstorms into the evening hours. Overnight lows about 73 degrees. And then for tomorrow, sunshine highs around 93 for a high. 75 degrees now in Boston at 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by 1776 at the ART. See the electrifying revival of the Tony-winning Best Musical. Final Weeks closes July 24th. amrep.org. And Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC.